Hello, and welcome to this speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about Wild Woman of the West, Jane Street, all in under 30 minutes, give or take. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but usually ride solo for these speed listen bonus installments. Today, however, I'm joined by wordslinger Jane Little Botkin for another in our series <laughs> featuring Wild Women of the West. Jane is renowned for scouring the West for firsthand sources in family diaries, libraries, and museums in order to collect the personal narratives of American families with compelling stories of labor radicals, miners, lawmen, and outlaws. Her latest book, The Girl Who Dared to Defy, Jane Street and the Rebel Maids of Denver, is the story of Wild West activist Jane Street, a young woman and single mother who, in 1916, in the wake of the violent labor disputes in Colorado's two-year coalfield war, took a stand to change the status quo for the, quote, girls who well-to-do women in Denver referred to as their hired help. Jane's first book, Frank Little and the IWW, The Blood That Stained an American Family, won two Spur Awards from the Western Writers of America, the prestigious Caroline Bancroft Prize, and was a finalist for both the Oklahoma and Montana Book Awards. The Girl Who Dared to Defy, Jane Street and the Rebel Maids of Denver, is equally worthy. Hi, Jane. I know you're in the midst of a major move, so I appreciate you coming to hang out with me today. Oh, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you, Paul. You inherited a tremendous background of Western history on your father's side. What can you tell me about that and how it influenced you? I grew up with my father always having a Louis L'Amour or Zane Gray book in front of his nose. And of course, we went to the drive-ins and saw all the John Wayne movies. So I was a lover of Western history and certainly the books and the culture from the beginning. But my father also inherited a background from Oklahoma Land Run and complete with the Daltons and Doolins. His grandfather, my great-grandfather, was the Daltons family physician in Missouri. And when the Daltons came to Oklahoma, they kept the same relationship with my great-grandfather who had come during the Oklahoma Land Run. And eventually he was the doctor also for the Doolin Dalton gang. So I knew about that, and I, I was fascinated with that history. And then I learned as a teenager about Frank Little, and he had been a secret in the family, and I thought they were ashamed of him, but it turned out they were afraid of the government. I found that out as I did that book. And the more I looked into my father's history, the more fascinated I became because there was so much more. My great-grandmother on his side, we believe, was a prostitute in a mining camp in Colorado. That was interesting. And her daughter, my grandmother, actually worked as a maid in Denver Mansion. She was born and raised in Denver and orphaned. Her stepfather was a mining superintendent in Louisville. So there was just all this extra family history. And once I looked into Frank, I started discovering the rest. And so that's why I like to write about the West. I taught senior English for 30 years, and my son, unfortunately, had been one of my students. He'll tell you that. Maybe fortunately, I don't know. But he came into my office one day, and he told me that he was having to write a document-based question, I called a DBQ, for an advanced placement American history course. And it was on the cartoon of Frank Little being hanged. The Copper Trust was there, and the media, the newspapers, and they're saying, let's just say he's a traitor. Tell them he's a traitor. And he said, this is our uncle. And I said, yes, it is. And I realized then I was going to have to tell that story. And so that took me eight years to research. I retired in 2008 from teaching. 
The book came out in 2017 and uh, I was hooked. Writing is addicting. The research is addicting. And researching Frank Little just opened up many more doors. For one thing, I found out I could write and I didn't know I could. (laughs) You're saying researching is addicting and I agree with that. At what point do you feel you need to stop researching and start writing? You researched for eight years for the Frank Little book. That was unusual. The reason I had to is because he had gone into 10 different states. And I firmly believe that even if you're writing a fiction novel, or definitely if you're writing nonfiction, you've got to walk the story. You've got to go to those locations where those individuals were or the setting that you're going to use to describe. You have to feel it. And so I literally went to every place that he organized, wherever he breathed. And in doing so, if you're doing nonfiction, you certainly find more documents. The research is there. The information is there. And so that's why that took me so long was because of where all he went. Now, on Jane Street, it only took me two years to research. And then I spent the third year writing. Let's talk about Jane Street. How and when did you uncover her story, and what was it about her story that was so compelling that you wanted to write about her? I was going through the Bureau of Investigation Files, what we call the FBI today, and I was going through all of these files. They called them the old German files. They were documents from spies, FBI spies back in 1917 through 1920, when everyone thought the industrial workers were definitely radicals. They were anarchists to a degree, but they were considered a threat to the homeland. And they thought that they were in cahoots with the Germans in World War One. So the FBI or the Bureau of Investigation actually started investigating all these people. And Big Bill Haywood, who was the general secretary treasurer of the IWW, was arrested. And there was a trial against him and my uncle posthumously. And in that trial, they bring up Jane Street. They also brought up that Frank Little had been writing her. So that was the connection right then that he was helping a a woman and nobody else was really helping women at that time. And so I was fascinated by that. And about the same time, I discovered that my grandmother had been a housemaid in Denver at the same time that Jane was organizing in Denver. And so when I put that together, I wanted to know the story about how this even happened. This is the first biography that was written about Jane Street. I tried to do some background research myself, but immediate sources outside of your book are very scarce. So how did you go about unearthing Jane's story? Well, there really isn't anything about her. When I first started, I Googled her name. And of course, it said she was a housemaid who organized a rebellion of domestics in Denver. She wasn't a housemaid. She was a stenographer. But that's all anybody knew. There is a journalist, David D. Kirkpatrick. He writes for the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer last year. His thesis when he was at Princeton in the 1990s was on Jane Street. I don't know how or why he chose her, but he did. And I was graciously allowed to look at his thesis, and that's where I began. There was one other letter in the National Archives that Jane had written, which was just so full of her voice. And then I just started looking. I use Ancestry.com a lot when I'm researching individuals, and I found Jane's grandson was still alive, and she had raised him. And because of that, he had all of her papers. I went to go see him in Bullhead, Arizona. And he pulled out all these files and these photographs. I hit the jackpot. It's a a researcher's dream. And then the Bureau of Investigation, starting in 1917, because of her associations, they started a dossier on her. 
And so I was able to really fill in more. I found other individuals who were connected to her and it just fell into place. I know just about everything she did every day of her life. And it was a really exciting story to tell. What do you find more reliable, the documents that you unearth or the interviews that you do with people? One of the things I used to tell my students when I had them research was to pay attention to anecdotes. Anecdotal information obviously can't be trusted. But when you have an anecdote, generally like there's a mustard seed of truth in it that needs to be sought out. You need to find out why that anecdote even begun. And so I love interviewing family members with these stories because there is an anecdotal information I need to chase. There's going to be a great story there somewhere. I did find out early on if I looked at scholarly information or I looked at something that, say, professors had written, I couldn't necessarily trust it. And I'm not slamming academics. That's not it at all. But typically, they'll do the research, and if they get one thing wrong, the person who's building on that next leg of the research will use the, the misinformation and go on. And I found that a lot on Frank Little. So typically, if I'm looking at documents like that, I will see where that individual got his or her sources. I'll go check out those sources myself. And if they're primary, that's where I'll go. I really try to depend as much as I can on primary investigate. I'll go to those sources. I will certainly listen to the assessment that other people have made about certain topics or individuals, but I really want to make those judgments myself. And I could be wrong on certain things. And if I think I'm going to be wrong, I'm going to lay it out right then that this may be it. This might be an option of what happened. But I like to talk to the people to get the feeling but then I will go to the primary resources to back it up. It's interesting. We just did a two-part episode on Custer, and there is so many yep. different versions of how Custer died. The standard, he's on the hill alone, last man standing like Davy Crockett at the Alamo, is just a bogus Hollywood invention. But there's all these other variations of how Custer died at Little Bighorn. And in doing some deep digging, I found a reference from a Lakota chief that said it was Chief Rain in the Face who actually killed Custer right at the beginning of the battle. So I went, okay, that's interesting. It's just another one in all of these ways that I've heard that Custer died. And then researching the next episode about Buffalo Bill, I'm reading Buffalo Bill's autobiography, and right in there he says, and it was Chief Rain in the face who killed Custer. How weird to get from two totally different sources. So the that's story. good. That's perfect. It's like here yeah. in Texas, we have that in the Alamo, and of course you've got the movie, but that Travis, he was there fighting along. Well, Travis was killed right at the very beginning. And that's just not a story that they tell. You want your heroes to be alive a little bit longer <laughs> to make a good story. Sure. The actor's not going to take the role if it's that short. <laughs> that's right. Okay. You're, you're there on page two and you're killed on page four. I'm not taking that role. I'm not taking that. This is interesting because it's really at the heart of what we do on the Six Gun Justice podcast. We are not a history podcast. We're a pop culture podcast how pop culture looks at the West through books, movies, and television. So as you said, when we did our Alamo episode, the truth, or what might be the truth, is far different than what we see again and again on the movie screen or the television. I taught a descendant of Davy Crockett, and it was about the same time that the diary came out of the Mexican soldier who said that he had actually made it through the battle and surrendered at the end and asked to be spared and tried to make a deal. And at the time, I remember the Crockett family just came unglued. They were so upset over this. 
And since then, we now know there was an alternate story on Davy Crockett and how he may have died. You want them to be the way we Americans want to see them. So We want our heroes, and we're going to rewrite history to show them as heroes. Yep. That's exactly what happens with Custer. Custer writes his own autobiography, which is more pompous than anything P.T. Barnum could have come up with. And then after he dies, Libby goes around the country for years trying to burnish the reputation of her husband and show him to be a hero. And so many of the myths about Custer come from what Libby spread. And there's no basis, in fact, for any of them. No. And I think I can't remember somebody at Western Writers is doing a biography of Libby. And I think it's going to be quite interesting when they find out her motives and her addition to Custer's life. Yeah. It all comes back to money. Oh, no, I didn't say that. (laughs) Uh, You had access to Jane Street's own writings. How did you get access to them and what did they reveal? She was a prolific writer from the very first time she fell in love. She was writing love poetry, and then she wrote radical poetry. She wrote essays and short stories, and she would keep sending them in to be published. Her grandson found all of these documents. It, just a, it was a, just a pack full of them. In fact, I just donated them to History Colorado, to the Stephen H. Hart Library. I, with his permission, I, I thought her papers needed to go somewhere. And he just brought them out of his safe. And he said, I have this and I have this. And as I started reading each of these, I realized, oh, my gosh, they spanned like 40 years from the time she was in her teens until she was an old woman living in a studio apartment. Actually, it was an old office building just in an office where she was living with a typewriter that had one key that didn't work and she would work on that typewriter. It just it was so gracious of him to allow me to have those documents. What a treasure trove. And because she was a woman, she's revealing so much of her feelings at the same time. She was very self-reflective. It really helped to get her personality together for the book. Let's talk about Jane's story. How did she come to be this radical? What drove her? And why did she decide she had to be the one to make the change? And what were those changes she was demanding? She was born in India, graduated from high school there, and then moved to Arkansas. And she had an older sister who was a little wild. This sister, Grace, had run off and was working as a burlesque dancer in Coney Island. Jane's mother was not paying attention. She was very despondent and depressed. So the girls did what they wanted to do. Jane had a very unfortunate relationship with a man, Jack Street, who was twice her age as a result of her father passing early and this man stepping in. That ended badly. And Grace wanted to go to California to do vaudeville. So the girls left. And Jane had a baby from this man, Jack Street. He was a phony that was just an alias, and he ends up actually just being horrific during the story, the the events that he does. In California, she began working as a stenographer in a hotel, and everybody was unionizing in Sacramento. The hotel workers, they were trying to unionize, mainly because there was going to be an exposition there, and they were trying to get jobs. Everybody was juggling around to get the kind of job and spot they wanted to help with this construction for this exposition. And all these men had come in and there were no jobs for them. And Jane saw how they were treated. But she becomes indoctrinated with the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. And that in itself is quite strange, but it was a sign of the times. It was in 1910 that she was in Sacramento, and what had been happening across the West is we had this tremendous immigration that had come to the States, primarily to mine, 
miners came from Western Europe, you know, like they went to Butte, America, they were going to mine there. And as the miners came in, we also had the logging camps and everybody coming to feed the new industrial revolution that was occurring in the United States. You heard the term robber barons when we were growing up in history. These were the Rockefellers and the Guggenheims and the Rothschilds and Carnegies that owned these industries. And so with all these coming immigrants, unfortunately, the work conditions were not the most optimal because people were making money. These industries were making money. And so all of the regular people are hearing all of this. They want these jobs, but they know that there is definitely a difference between this really upper crust of people. I don't like to use the word class, but it was a situation where you had these robber barons who were doing their work, getting their money on the backs of this laboring group of people, primarily from Europe. There was an economic crash in 1907, and when it happened, it threw a lot of people out of work, particularly on the East Coast, and they would get on trains and come west looking for work, and there wasn't any work. This is when we started seeing hobos and tramps, and the IWW was formed in 1905 primarily because of the strikes in Colorado. There was a two-year labor war in 1903-1904 in the mining camps in Colorado, And in the end, the miners were deported out of the state. They were deported into Arizona. Some of them went to California. And so they formed the Industrial Workers of the World saying, you know what? We are going to organize against the ruling class, which is what they called them. And unlike the American Federation of Labor, we'll take anybody. You don't have to be skilled. You can be any color. You can be any gender. And we will unite and we'll overturn this. So that was the radical part of it. And violence was an option for them? Well, you know, it's funny because if you go down to the... Zane Gray actually wrote a book that was quite propaganda that they were doing that. You had back and forth going. Jack London would write just the opposite because he was a big supporter of the IWW. They really did not use any violence. They were accused of it. They were accused of sabotage and violence, but they really did not. And that comes out in the trial later. But once the Sedition Act was passed in 1918, they were considered traitors because they were speaking against the United States, its flag, its uniform, and that sort of thing, because they just said, you know what, this is your war in World War One. It's not our war. We're not going to fight it. But you have to consider that a lot of these miners who came from Europe, the Irish did not want to fight on the side with the English. They were their enemy. You had the Finnish. They did not want to fight on the side with the Russians because they had been their enemies. So you have all these other cultural beliefs, including socialism, because the Finnish were from a socialist country. So all of that is brought to the United States. And it was a perfect recipe for the IWW to form, especially after the deportations out of Colorado. And so that's how Jane got involved as far as the IWW goes. But the reason she went to Colorado was because of another mining incident, and that was the Ludlow Massacre. In April of 1914, there were a number of people killed, but in particular, there were 13 in one tent, 11 of them children and two of them women who were hiding in a cellar underneath their tent when J.D. Rockefeller's coal company sent in goons. A lot of them were the Colorado National Guard, and they fired wantonly on 1,200 people living in tents. They had been on strike, 
and Rockefeller had kicked him out of company housing. They wanted better wages and living conditions. He said, I'm not going to give you that. And if you're going to go on strike, then you've got to get out of the housing. And so they moved in the winter and they set up the 158 tents. They had seen where somebody had shot a gun through a tent and they knew that if they dug holes underneath the floors of their tents, they might survive. And in this particular case, what really drew Jane's attention was the fact that this one particular tent was set on fire and a lot of babies, small children, it's heartbreaking, and their mothers asphyxiated and burned. And that made national news. So she heard about it, and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was the epitome of the rebel girl for the IWW. She was an organizer speaker out of New York, traveling around the country, drawing attention to the Ludlow Massacre. She said every mother, daughter, wife should be outraged by this. It doesn't matter what class you belong to. A lot of the soldiers and the Colorado National Guard, of course, were volunteers. And a lot of these men were well-known businessmen in Denver who were doing their duty with the National Guard. The National Guard had a very sullied reputation starting back in 1903 and 1904. They were led by an ophthalmologist, Brigadier General John Chase. He got a promotion after Ludlow. And he was the Capitol Hill, which is the rich neighborhood in Denver at the time. He was like the ophthalmologist. And he led the troops that did this at Ludlow. And the women, the wives of the husbands, who may or may not have been involved but were associated with the National Guard, started saying horrible things like they deserve to die. Who are they? They're just minors' wives. It's no loss. So, yeah, Jane heard it, and she went to Denver because she was going to punish the women. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn had said, the queen of the parlor has nothing in common with the maid in the kitchen. And that particular quote hit Jane, and so she and Grace moved to Denver. And that's how it it's starts. In, it's interesting that there's this demarcation within the culture that the upper crust women look so down on women who were in the service quarter. Usually what we hear about is men looking down on women and women being in solidarity. But here, there's a real difference that, that is truly horrendous. Well, what's so sad about it is, is the women that she was actually organizing their domestics, many of them were actually working as activists to help other women, but they weren't looking at their own staff underneath them who were supporting them so that they could go do that. It's like the domestics were one step above prostitutes, literally in a labor study. That's what they discovered. And they just weren't viewed as being human. I I don't know how else to say it. And so the Colorado women were very much suffragists and activists and a lot of do-gooders. A lot of people just wanted free time to do something. A lot of them were very sincere, but they just weren't looking at their own workers. They were helping other women. They were the unseen. Certainly. What were the first steps that Jane took to make this stand? How did she go about organizing the women? First of all, she went to work three months as a maid. She wanted to find out what it was like. One of the things I found out was she was a polar opposite from her sister, Grace. Jane was very organized, everything black and white. She made notes every day on herself. I had said one time in another interview, she's probably one of those people that woke up in the morning and made a list of what she was going to do that day. She went to work as a maid. That was the very first thing she did. After that, she ran an ad in the two newspapers in Denver. Let's just say for a chambermaid, girls would read those ads and then they would write her saying they were interested. That's the way that would work. Meanwhile, she'd also look at the newspapers and the wanted where the mistresses were saying, I need a chambermaid. 
So the girl who was applying would come to Jane and Jane would say, oh, I have someone for you. This is where you're going to go. But first, I need you to give me your information. And doing that, Jane was building a list of all the other domestics in Denver. And as she built that list, she also told them, if it doesn't work out, come back. So in effect, she becomes like an employment agency. She becomes this middlewoman, for lack of a better term, and secretly has another plan underneath all of this. It's not just, let me find an employee, because she's not getting any money out of this. Um, Somebody in that position would do today. No, it was very devious. She would contact these women, say, let's have an information meeting. And they'd all come and they'd give their grievances. But as they walked through the door, she would hand out a note card and she'd say, all right, tell me who you're working for. Who is the lady? How big is her home? Generally, they're like six to 7,000 square feet. Do they have any children? What are your hours? Do you get any free time? How are you fed? What is your housing? Are you happy? How does she treat you? And she started compiling a blacklist. By the time she actually got this domestic workers union form, the first IWW local of this sort, she ends up with 300 members and she has a blacklist on a couple thousand women in Denver. If someone has been a very bad mistress, if a girl comes to look for a job, they go through this blacklist or file system is what Jane called it. And they'll pull the card on that madam. And if she's been a very bad mistress, she's not going to get anybody to go work for her because the girls will say, I don't want that. Talk about devious. Yes. How did she support herself while she was doing all of this? I found where she was advertising to do other odd work, stenography work. She met an IWW named Charles Devlin, and he just fell in love with her. She wasn't in love with him. But together, they would apply for jobs to work a managed property. She actually managed a boarding house. The dues, IWW, if you're an organizer, you did get some payment But it wasn't enough. And I learned that when I was doing Frank Little. Generally, you got paid $3 a day because that was the going rate that the miners were getting paid. That was just a stipend. They were always asking for donations and contributions and the IWW page. It was always very tight. Now, the House Made Rebellion made local and national news at the time. Was there support for Jane or was she considered too radical? Initially, the IWW thought it was just fantastic. They called her Feisty Jane Street, and so did the local newspapers. They thought it was wonderful. And it did make national news about these mistresses and about Jane. As she became better at the organization and the housemaids union grew stronger, the local men's, it was a mixed trades union in Denver, actually started giving her trouble. There was jealousy. They had been supporting her first, but then when she becomes the one that's always talked about in the IWW papers, she's the one soapboxing on street corners for the IWW. They started competing with her, and that definitely caused some trouble. There was a white slavery contingent in Denver. These men, mainly from the original employment agencies who were very unhappy with Jane, They would send white slavers to her meetings to try to get girls for prostitution. And the IWW men jumped on that. They started telling Big Bell Haywood that Jane was running a house of ill repute instead of a IWW local. And that caused a lot of trouble. And so Haywood had to send spies down to see what Jane was doing. So a lot of infighting. A lot of jealousy. 
There is a sexual assault that happens when I was researching the book and writing it was when the Kavanaugh hearings were going on and I was listening to all this and how the Me Too movement started and everything. And one of the things that stuck out to me about Jane was she was a fighter. She never said she was a victim, even though she was sexually assaulted, even though these men betrayed her. Even though she was married to a guy who was already married and he was a bigamist and comes into her life and tears it up again even later, she never complained about that. She might tell you matter of fact, which she did in this one letter to this woman about how when sex comes in the door, industrial unionism goes right out the window. But she never says, this is what happened to me and I'm a victim. I don't like to call her a survivor either because to say she's a survivor all of this means she had to have been a victim. And I think that's not fair to her because she saw herself as a fighter through all of this. With my background in investigation of sexual assaults, there were three types. There were victims, there were survivors, and then there were the victors. Yes, perfect. Three distinct types. Paul, I just love that analogy because that's what I've been saying all along. And I'd actually done a blog where I explained that and how on the Kavanaugh hearings, while I was writing this book, I cried for both of them, for everybody. Because it was a no-win situation. But that's it exactly. And I think I really liked her for that. Even in her elderly years, when she was by herself, she was a victor all the way through that, even though she was struggling economically and her children were dysfunctional, which is not surprising. The victors are the ones who go, this happened to me. I've moved beyond that. And I'm continuing to have my life because that's my revenge. That describes her attitude in the one letter I told you in the NARA, where she writes this one woman about being very cautious of the men and any locals nearby and why. That perfectly defines the way Jane was in her attitude in writing that letter. She was angry. Believe me, she was full of rage over what happened. But it was more so because of another event that the men did to her than her being a victim because she wasn't a victim. What was the end result of all of her efforts? What was really tragic was she valued motherhood so much. She had the first child out of wedlock with this guy. She's just a teenager. She gets pregnant again. She never gets married because she does not trust men. She doesn't fall in love. She has a relationship with Charles Devlin. She has two more children with him, but she loves those children like you wouldn't believe. And she is being told by this radical IWW wobbly named Calladale Sellers, you cannot be part of the revolution and be a mother. You just can't. And he berated her terribly in letters. He's also the one that sexually assaulted her. And so she is caught in this where she wants to be part of the IWW and what the movement is, but she loves her children more. And in the end, he gets into her head and she does something she really shouldn't have done. I was surprised that she was caught off guard and she loses her children as a result. She gets them back. But by that time, she knows she's not going to do anything else. It's going to risk losing the kids. In retrospect, she needed the IWW to get her cause launched, but in the long run, she probably would have been better off without them and the association. Yes, you probably, you couldn't have told her that. She knew things were wrong. When World War I starts, she's a patriot, and that went totally against the IWW. She wants to use the housemaids to fill empty positions in Denver where servicemen are leaving to go fight. And she offers that publicly in newspapers. And the IWW is so unhappy with her that the documents that were in the Bureau of Investigation files, the trial documents with Haywood, 
She's already on their blacklist. She was used, but she did have this empathy for women. She wanted women to have rights. And this was the vehicle that she was using, obviously, to do that. I'm not going to say that she was totally socialist. She joined the Socialist Party. But then again, there were a lot of people who were socialist at this time that they had been the progressive party, mainly starting with farmers. This is not something that's new. This repeats itself over history. That's why we study history. But she was a Democrat first and then she became a socialist. She was always interested in politics. She was interested in learning. She just wanted to help the downtrodden. Jane, I really appreciate you taking the time with me here today and to talk about this. I would recommend that everybody read this book because it is aligned with what's going on today. And you can see the parallels. And it's so well written. It's an engaging story. It makes you think about a lot of things, which I think is a great achievement for a writer if you make your readers think. So thank you for being here. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Paul. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this bonus speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes, Six Gun Justice speed listen installments, and Six Gun Justice conversations are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and never stand in the way of a determined wild woman of the West. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride. <laughs>